I don't know if many of you are aware, but today is actually a, a national holiday, uh, one that is uh, pretty important to me. Uh, it's, it's National Star Wars Day today. Um, may the 4th be with you. Yes, I'm a nerd in case you were wondering that. We're going to be in the book of Judges today, book of Judges again, and we're going to cover chapters 14 and 15 together this morning. Uh, this is going to cover part one of Samson's life. Uh, there's a part two, but we'll get to that next week. Uh, so this morning, we're going to walk through this text in, in three portions together. We're going to talk about Samson's story, God's story, and our story. Samson's story, God's story, and our story story. Uh, The main idea of my message this morning, what I want you to walk away knowing or hoping that I've proved to you, is that God uses every character and every action to write the story of history, which is the story of his glory. God uses every character and every action to write the story of history, the story of his glory. Uh, Before we get into the text this morning, uh, let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for who you are and for what you've done in our lives that you've called us together here. God, we thank you that the church is not a place but a people, that you've called us your bride, that you've called us into fellowship with you. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much that uh, as people nailed you to the cross and as you were in great anguish, you had all the, all the powers of heaven at your disposal. You did uh, the greatest act in all of human history, and you stayed for us, that you might win us to yourself. Lord, we thank you for living the life we should have lived and dying the death we should have died, for absorbing the cost of sin on our behalf. And with that as the, at the forefront of our minds this morning, God, I just pray that you help us to love you more dearly. And that you help us to understand your word more clearly. God, I pray that uh, the words I speak this morning that are from you would be remembered and meditated on. And I pray for the listener this morning that they would engage and think and learn that they might grow into maturity, grow in holiness to be more like you. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, well, to recap a little bit, as we've walked through Judges, we've seen this cycle happen that just repeats itself over and over again. Remember, uh, the people, they depart from God and they start worshiping idols. They start following the gods of other peoples. And so what God does as judgment on them, the right now judgment, is he gives them into the hands of the other people. And so Israel ends up oppressed. Then eventually, after they're oppressed, they realize, hey, we've been following idols. This isn't so good. And so they cry out to God, who then raises up a deliverer or a rescuer to lead the people out of the oppression. We've seen it happen over and over and over again, right? And the cycle just happens. And last week, we pointed out one of the interesting things in this particular cycle is that there's no cry. Israel's been oppressed for 40 years by the Philistines, yet they haven't cried out for a deliverer. But in chapter 13, we read that God would deliver his people anyway. And so he brings about the miraculous conception in a woman that had been barren. That miraculous conception was of the judge that we met last week. His name is Samson. 
And so as we've seen Samson last week, he, he saw a girl from a distance, right? This Philistine girl, and she was right in his eyes, right enough to marry. Hadn't even talked to her, remember we said? Uh, he was just kind of creeping on her from a distance. But he liked what he saw, and he decided, hey, I want to marry her. He went and told his parents, get this girl for me. I want to marry her. They said, are you sure? That's such a great idea. And he said, uh, I don't care what you think. She's right in my eyes. I want to marry her. And that's where we find ourselves today in the text. And so starting with verse 5, I'm going to read it. I'm going to try to just story some of it to you. And so we'll, we'll jump in and out of the text this morning. Uh, so starting with verse 5 of chapter 14, we've kind of picked it up. Samson and his parents are now walking down towards uh, the town of this Philistine girl that was uh, right in Samson's eyes. Verse 5. And a young lion came toward him, roaring. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed on him. And although he had nothing in his hands, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. But he didn't tell his father or his mother what he had done. Then he went down and talked with the woman, and she was right in his eyes. After some days, he he returned to take the woman, and he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion. And behold, there was a swarm of bees in the body of the lion and honey. He scraped it out onto his hands, and he went, eating as he went. And he came to his father and his mother, and he, he gave some to them. But he did not tell them where he had gotten the honey that he had scraped it from the carcass of the lion. So Samson, who had this Nazarite vow, a life that was supposed to be consecrated to the Lord, uh, we've seen him break that vow in a couple of ways, or begin to break it, uh, wherein he's going after this non-Israelite woman. He's not supposed to marry somebody that's not an Israelite. And now we see him touching and handling a dead carcass. He's not supposed to touch anything dead because it would make him unclean. Not only that, he takes honey out of it and he eats it making them very unclean. And then he shares it with his parents. And so they are ignorantly unclean as well. The scene shifts now and we see Samson preparing a feast. It's going to last seven days. It's a wedding feast. They knew how to get married uh, back in the day, I guess, for a whole week. You just kind of partied. Uh, And in this particular feast, uh, the Philistines, whether it's a part of their custom, I'm I'm not really sure how this comes about, but they, they hook him up with 30 companions or 30 fellows, 30 friends, whatever you want to call them. Uh, And they're just kind of assigned to him as part of his wedding party. And so it's in this wedding party. He's looking around. He says, you know what? I think I have a financial opportunity here, a chance to, to make a, a little bit of money. He says, I've got a riddle for you guys, to the 30 companions. If you can answer my riddle, you have to, you, if you can't answer it, you'll have to give me 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. My, a nice way to think of this in our culture is maybe just like 30 really fine suits. Like, you know, it costs a few thousand dollars. It's, there's, there's some money on the line here. So the companions agree and they say, all right, but uh, if we do figure it out, you have to give us 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. And so the bet is on. And this is this is the riddle that Samson lays on him in verse 14. Out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. So a few days go by three, I think it is somewhere in there, and they cannot figure out this riddle and they realize we need to get some help because we don't want to give up our 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. And so they employ a, a tactic that's probably as old as human beings and they resort to blackmail. And so they come to, to Samson's wife, who they assume knows the answer, and then this is what they say to her. Entice your husband to tell us what the riddle is, lest we burn you and your father's house with fire. Have you invited us here to impoverish us? And Samson's wife wept. And she said, you only hate me. You don't love me. You've put a riddle to my people, but you haven't told me the answer. 
And Samson responds, look, I haven't told anybody, not even my mom or my dad. Why would I tell you? She continued to weep before him seven days that the feast lasted. And on the seventh day, he told her because she had pressed him hard. And then she told the riddle to her people. And the men of the city, uh, to make it more dramatic, waited till the end of the last day. You know, the sun's kind of setting. And they come up to Samson and, you know, probably he's thinking, hey, I've just won this riddle. And they say, what is sweeter than honey? And what is stronger than a lion? They've won the bet. And Samson, pretty, pretty angry already, recognizes that, hey, they, they've cheated. And he says, uh, the way he says this is crude, and it's as crude in their culture as it was in ours. He says, you would, if you wouldn't have plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. It's basically saying you cheated. If you wouldn't have asked my wife, you wouldn't have known the answer. Not a very flattering way to, to speak of his wife. But he's angry, and so he says, uh, he says, you cheated. And the Spirit of the Lord rushes on him in his anger, and he runs down to this Philistine city that's about 20 miles away, and he kills 30 Philistines. And he takes their linen garments and the changes of clothes. And then he returns back to where this wedding feast was, and he pays his debt with those garments, with uh, the garments of the people that he had killed. It's a pretty sore loser. You don't want to play a game with, with Samson or, or someone like him. Now, if that's not enough for you, verse 20 is just out of left field. So they've had this big wedding feast. Uh, so they had this, this bet. Uh, Samson lost. He killed some Philistines. And then he goes back to his father's house angry in a lone note. And in verse 20, we read, And Samson's wife was given to his companion, who had been his best man. Now, can you imagine going to a wedding and by the time, by the end of the week, you know, it's a week-long celebration. The, and the, at the end, the groom runs off angry. And so they go, you know what? Uh, his wife is going to actually be his best friend's wife. It's really, really crazy times. Uh, a little bit different than our own culture, I guess. Uh, but so Samson gets mad and he, he goes back home. A little bit later, he, he wises up and he says, I'm going to make things right with my wife. And so he gets a goat, uh, which is a little bit like flowers in their culture, I imagine. And he's going to take his wife some flowers or this young goat and, and make things right. He wants to get out of the doghouse. And something happens. And in verse 2, he, he, he shows up with this goat. He wants to go into his wife's chamber. And uh, this is what her father tells him. I really thought that you utterly hated her. And so I gave her to your friend. But here, let me make a deal with you. Her younger sister is prettier than her, so you can have her younger sister as a wife instead. Now, from what we know of Samson, this doesn't seem like so bad a deal. After all, he, he looked at this girl, decided he wanted to marry her because she was so beautiful, I guess. And then he talked to her and decided she was still right. So we think, hey, from Samson's perspective, uh, this might work out. But there's another thing we know of Samson, and that's that nobody tells him what to do. And so again, we see him become enraged. And so what does he do but catch 300 foxes or jackals and he ties their tails together with a torch in between. I don't, I don't know how he does all this. This is just what the Bible tells us happens. He, he runs all these, these rodents down and he ties torches between uh, their tails and then he lights those torches on fire and sends them through the fields of the Philistines, which in an agricultural society is a pretty heavy blow because that's how you survived. And so all their grain is burnt up and they're pretty angry now and they're like, who has done this? And they find out that it's Samson. So they go, wait a minute. Samson, whose wife was given to his friend. And so they go and they find Samson's wife and they find her father. And remember, they blackmailed her and said they would burn her if she didn't get the answers for him. 
And they actually, this is irony right here, they burn her and her father. Samson finds out and is angry again. And then he strikes down a bunch of Philistines. We're not told how many more, but we're told that he avenges them. And he struck them hip and thigh with a great blow. Then Samson realizes, hey, I have made these Philistines really mad, most likely. And so I'm going I'm to go on the lamb a little bit. I'm going to go hide out for a little while. And he goes and he hides in the cleft of a rock. Now, as he's hiding in this cleft of a rock, uh, you have three thousand, I'm sorry, you have a, a bunch of Philistines go down and encamp against Judah. They're going to raid a, a small city there. And then the men of Judah comes up and they say, why are you encamping against us? Why are you going to battle against us? And the Philistines say, we've come to bind Samson and to do to him as he did to us. Then 3,000 of the men of Judah go to Samson in the cleft of the rock. And they recognize Samson as their leader. And Samson leads them out of the oppression of the Philistines. He leads the army. Actually, that's not what happens. That's what we would expect to happen. No, these 3,000 men of Judah, God's people, they come to Samson in the cleft of the rock. And they say to him, do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us. They've so accepted the oppression of the Philistines that they view them as kings. They view them as the rulers. They are completely subservient to that culture. It's almost as if they don't even have memory of the divine God or of their judges that had freed them so many times. I can't help but think Gideon's words uh, would be ringing uh, in my ears when I read this text and in the author's ears as he wrote it. Where Gideon says, and the Lord will rule over you. And they're saying, do you not know that the Philistines rule over us? So Samson strikes a deal with his fellow Israelites and says, hey, if you don't bind me up, I mean, if you don't kill me, I'll let you bind me up and you can hand me over to the Philistines and we'll see what happens from there. And so they bind him up. And as they're taking him towards the Philistines, uh, they start to shout victory, which I imagine you might do seeing this guy that had taken out so many of your people. He's coming towards you. He's bound. To, there's a great victory. And so they're shouting victory. And what happens is, is and this is just kind of crazy in the text. This is uh, the spirit of the Lord rushes on Samson and the ropes on his arms become as flax because they had caught fire. And the bonds melted off of his hands. So there's this miraculous unbinding of Samson that the Lord does. And he looks around and he finds a jawbone of a donkey. Picks up the jawbone and then just continues to kill a thousand men. And he says, with the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps. With the jawbone of a donkey have I struck down a thousand men. At the end of all this, he's, uh, he's very, very thirsty. And so for the first time, we see Samson turn to the Lord and he prays. It's not a very humble prayer, but he he says this. You have granted this salvation by the hand of your servant. And shall I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? That's people that are outside of the covenant of God. And God split open a hollow place and gave water out from it. And he drank and his spirit returned. Then the last verse, verse 20 says, And he judged Israel in the days of the Philistines for 20 years. I think that last phrase is important because it points us to Israel's hard-heartedness. To, because to this point, when a judge is raised up and a judge has a great victory or is spoken of as judging the people, it's the land had rest. And so-and-so judged Israel this many years. It's to point out that the Philistines have not been overthrown. And so concludes part one of the story of Samson. We see uh, an, an alleged hero 
who's deeply flawed and prone to, to fits of rage. He doesn't really keep his promises to the law, and he's kind of just Israel and many, right? They haven't held up their end of the promise of God. He, he's supposed to be their God. They're supposed to be his people, yet they have gone after other gods. But I think we're left asking, why would God call and use someone like Samson in such an odd way? Because God uses every character and every action to write the story of history story of his glory. And this brings us to God's story. You see, the Lord utilizes Samson, even his sin, to cause discord and strife between Israel and the Philistines. You see, the people of God had so cozied up to the culture that they had forgotten the one true God. And they had left their marriage and united themselves with idols. And so it was necessary that God would use Samson, use his judge to upset this status quo, to remind the people that they were to be a light to all nations, that they were to take the land. Remember, we talked about holy war way back when, where God commanded them to go in, and they were kind of God's judgment on the people, and they were going to take the land and be a light to the world so that all would know that Israel's God is the one true God and that they would come to him. See, the people were supposed to take the land. However, the land ended up taking them. The light was supposed to invade the darkness. Instead, it was being consumed by the darkness. But Samson's story is is God's story. And even though Israel hadn't kept their promises, even though Israel had failed on their end in taking the land, and even though they were really enjoying following these other idols to their own destruction, God would not abandon them. And he would use Samson, even Samson's sin, to start bringing about his deliverance. I mean, after all, who do you think arranged for Samson to see this girl? Who do you think sent a lion to attack him? Who do you think gave him the strength to rip a lion in two with his bare hands? Who do you think caused bees to take up residence in the carcass of a lion? That's not something that usually happens. Who do you think caused them to produce honey? Who do you think gave him strength to defeat 30 Philistines, to catch 300 foxes, to strike the Philistines hip and thigh, and to kill many more with a jawbone? The Lord himself. See, God will not forget his promises, but will use Samson, even Samson's weaknesses, to remain faithful to his word, that he would preserve for himself a people that he chose to set his love on, not because of anything in them, not because they were more numerous than other people's, but simply because he loved them by his grace. And so he will preserve himself a people. He will remain faithful to the covenant. Despite the fact that they had tried to hand over their rescuer, he wouldn't allow them to. He would not abandon his people, and he would not abandon his rescuer, and thus... Samson has this great victory over the Philistines. Samson, flawed as he is, carries out God's perfect plan. See, this wouldn't be the last time that God used sinful people to bring about his perfect plan either. We're told in Acts 2, uh, 22 through 24. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed him 
in the hands of lawless men. See, God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was no longer possible for him to be held by death. See, like Samson, Jesus was God's chosen deliverer. And like Samson, he stirred up strife and conflict between himself and the world. And the world killed him. See, like Samson, Jesus was handed over to death by his own people. But unlike Samson, this rescuer, Jesus, was abandoned by the Father. Thabiti Inabawile writes of this, In Jerusalem that day hung a picture of hell. As the Son of God was cut off socially from everyone, deserted emotionally on the cross, and separated spiritually from the eternal Father with whom he had always lived face to face. That's hell. And sinner, that is our place. That's the horror that awaits everyone who dies in their sin, not repenting from sin and trusting in Jesus alone to save them from the wrath of God. And for the worship of God. It's not pretty. It's dark and horrifying and unimaginable. So much so that even the God-man cried out and died. Friends, here is the treasure of the gospel. That Jesus took hell so that we could have heaven. That he was abandoned so that we could be adopted. That God used men's sin to bring about his perfect plan. You see, the cross didn't take God by surprise. He uses every character and action to bring about the story of his glory. Even sinful actions. You might ask, how could God use such a flawed people? Wouldn't God use really good people? But God is not so limited by us. For if he were, that would be to make man sovereign and God subservient. If we expect God to only work with good people, he wouldn't be able to use anybody. If he was constrained by our works, it would mean that God does not work by grace. That he doesn't take the initiative to save, but that he would have to wait on us and work in response to what we do. He would have to wait for people to help him save. But you see, God is sovereign and he is good. And he works by grace. He initiates our salvation. He calls us unto himself. And he upholds the covenant. He keeps for himself a people. God uses even our failures as the foundations for his success. Keller writes of this, The amazing truth is that God works through sinners and through sinful situations. He keeps his promises to bless his people in the dark and disastrous periods of our lives, as well as through the times when things are going right. You see, the truth is that not even our sin will stop him from saving us or using us. Mysteriously and often unseen and usually far beyond our comprehension, God works through the free and often flawed choices of his people. This reminds me of that promise in Romans again, that God works all things together for the good of those who love him. And that great promise, as we read earlier together, is that nothing... Not height, not depth, not nakedness, not sword. Nothing in all of creation can separate us from the love of God. Not even our own sin. Because when God sets his love on us, he does not abandon us. But stays with us and adopts us as his sons and as his daughters. And he will not fail us as his people. He keeps us in his grace. Even in our sin. 
None are plucked from his hand because he is ever faithful, even though his people are really, really flawed. God uses every character and every action to write the story of history, the story of his glory. So this brings us to our third section, which is our story. We've seen Samson's story, God's story. Now we're going to talk about, well, what does this mean for our story? I want to just point out three, uh, three ways that this passage can be significant to us. Three lessons that I kind of learned as I uh, sat and studied on the text this week. Uh, the first is to think soberly. Let's not confuse gifts with growth. Secondly, to pray continually, not just when you need stuff. And thirdly, to live in community. Uh, Jesus died so that we didn't have to do life alone. Think soberly, uh, pray continually, and live in community. First, think soberly. In Samson's story, it's easy to see that this man, as uh, sinful as he is, as flawed as he is, does some amazing things, right? I mean, it's not every day you see a bro rip a lion in two with his bare hands. I mean, if you hung out with me, maybe you would see it. I do it all the time. But no, he's done some miraculous things. He's tore a lion in two. Uh, he killed a bunch of guys with like a jawbone. That's not a great weapon. Uh, it's just crazy. And you're going, man, how is he so gifted? He's gifted in this really extraordinary way. But he doesn't really exemplify the character of God in his life, right? Like he's not growing in holiness. And I think that the point here that, that I took from the text, the lesson is that the Bible makes a distinction that we often ignore as believers, right? That there's a distinction between gifts of the Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit or growth in the Spirit. You know, in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, Paul uh, outlines gifts that we have. Or skills for doing. Then in Galatians in chapter 5, Paul tells us of the fruit of the Spirit as character traits. They're, they're elements of being. You know, remember love, joy, peace, patience. These are things that we are as Christians as we grow in holiness, as we uh, walk through that process of sanctification, becoming in practice what God has declared us to be in truth. And so with that in mind, as the character traits in mind, that's fruit of the Spirit, that's how we grow in holiness, versus gifts, they're things that we do or abilities that we have, we, we go back to 1 Corinthians and look at chapter 13. You remember how that chapter goes, Paul tells us, if I speak in tongues of men or of angels, and if I do this or that and this, but I have not love, it's worthless, it's empty, it's meaningless. So if you lack the fruit of love, then the gifts are ultimately worth nothing. See, the point is in the Bible, we come across a lot of characters that do some pretty amazing and marvelous things. But I think they, they kind of work as a warning sign for us because they don't really grow in holiness. I think Samson's one of those characters. I think 1 Corinthians shows us that we ought to beware of this pitfall in our own lives, that we want to make sure that we're growing in holiness and not just operating within our giftedness. That we need to consider ourselves and our spiritual lives soberly. Because sometimes it's, it's the most gifted people outwardly that look like they have everything together that are the most flawed, that are the most inwardly broken and very, very far from the Lord. The most unholy inwardly. They don't really have the fruit of the Spirit. They've got all the decorations, kind of like a, a Christmas tree, but in the end they're very dead. So the question is, is where are we? Where are we? Are we like the, the politician or the pastor that has the scandal come out about them, right? Everything looks great. These guys are really using their gifts. Man, what a great person so-and-so is. 
And then, you know, the New York Times comes out on the front page. Scandal. I always think of Bill Clinton. Man, I think he did. He was a great president. I think he was a great president still. But when you when I mentioned Bill Clinton right away, everybody thinks scandal. You know, and this one thing kind of defined him where his inward life wasn't it wasn't lined up with his outward life. The point I'm, I'm trying to make is that we cannot look at the use of our gifts or doing that which we're talented at, talented at as proof that we are flourishing spiritually. Must not mistake the operation of gifts for the growth of the fruit. The fruit is what proves spiritual growth. Therefore, we ought to think soberly. Make sure we don't confuse gifts with growth. Secondly, I pointed out that it would be important to pray continually. Uh, Samson uh, uses his gifts. He's not growing in holiness. And throughout this whole narrative, the first time we see him call out to God is when he's kind of thirsty and he is kind of on the run a little bit still, right? It's not even a humble prayer we pointed out. So you granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant. Now shall I die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? It's the first time he prays when he really needs something and he's come to the end of himself. God, because he's a good God, he obliges and gives him something to drink. But the point is, is that I think our prayer life, rather than religious activities, rather than these things we do, is the best indicator of our spiritual health. Your prayer life is the best indicator of your spiritual health. Is prayer consistent? Is it something that you enjoy? Is it warm? Are you not only talking, but sitting and listening and reflecting and thinking and learning? Are you walking with God? Are you a little bit more like Samson, only praying as a last resort, typically for yourself and things that you want? Pray continually, not just when you need stuff. Lastly, live in community. Samson, for the most part, throughout this whole narrative, is a lone wolf, right? He's just doing everything on his own. He doesn't take advice from anybody, not his parents, not his in-laws, nobody. He does things his own way. Uh, I, I, for some reason, I think of him a little bit like Jack Bauer in the first season of 24, where he's just like running around, killing folks, doing what needs to be done, right? He's solo. He's doing everything on his own. But the problem with, with trying to live life on our own is that, that that's not what Jesus has called us to. He's created us for community, community with one another and with himself. I think that's one of the beautiful things in the gospel. That Jesus' death not only reconciles us to God himself, but to one another. So that we can fully be ourselves. So that we can fully understand what it means to be human. So that we can do what we were created to do, which is to worship the Lord. To love the Lord Jesus Christ. Reconciliation, then, means living in community. Reconciliation means living in community. I love what uh, Milton Vincent writes in his small little book called A Gospel Primer. He writes this of the community of God. When God saved us, he made us members of his household. And he gave us as gifts to one another. Each brother and sister is a portion of my gospel inheritance from God. And I am a portion of their inheritance as well. We are significant players in each other's gospel narrative. And it is in relationship with one another that we experience the fullness of God in Christ. Hence, 
The more I comprehend the full scope of the gospel, the more I value the the church for which Christ died, the more I value the role that I play in the lives of my fellow Christians. And the more I appreciate the role that they must be allowed to play in my own life. Friends, we were all made to live in community. The good news of the gospel is that it allows us to truly live in that community with ourselves, with one another, and with God. See, God uses every character and action to write the story of history, the story of his glory. And the question I want to leave you with this morning is, what is your story? He's brought each of us together here uh, in this room today for a distinct purpose. Uh, and it's ultimately to, to bring him glory. But the question is, is will you follow him? How will your role play out in the story of history? Will you be one that follows Jesus Christ? Or you'll be one that denies him. Uh, many uh, illustrate the call uh, to follow Jesus as a door. And above the door frame is written uh, Matthew ten thirty two. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. And then if we choose to walk through that door, it's as if the door slams shut and we turn around and look above the door frame and find John six forty four. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. I think this illustration holds up for us uh, God's sovereignty and our responsibility. Kind of how they work together hand in glove rather than opposed to one another. It's a little bit like in physics how light uh, works as both a particle and as a wave. It has the attributes of both. And so too in our lives. We uh, make free decisions, but God works all things together according to his good purpose. It's a great mystery of the gospel. Great mystery of humanity and how we function in our lives. All that to say, your decision matters. Will you follow Jesus? Will you walk through that door this morning? Will you live in community with him, him and his church? Or will you be a lone ranger? Ultimately separated from God by your sin. I implore you this morning to walk through the door into community and into the body of Christ where there is great joy, there is a feast, there's wine and there's food and it's marvelous. Would you pray with me this morning? Lord Jesus, again, we thank you so much for the cross and for this good news. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for your word that you have spoken it to us, that you have spoken peace over our lives. We thank you that uh, even though we were lost and we were blind and we were worshiping all these empty things in the world, that you set your love on us and that you called us to yourself. That thousands of years ago, before uh, any of us in this room had been born, we were on your mind as you hung on the cross at Calvary. And that you stayed there so that we could be reconciled and have peace with you. Jesus, be our treasure this morning and this week. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.